You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we thank you that you've given us access to you through Christ, that you, the presence of the church in the world to bring us to know you. We ask that you bless and fortify uh, the, the few minutes we have to reflect on the history of your people, your church, and how it affects us, um, even in ways we don't understand and may not until uh, we know you face to face. We give thanks for this week, this day. Pray for all the needs in this room. Uh, in Christ's name, amen. Let me ask. Oh, good morning. Um, again, the fourth in, in, in a five-part series. Uh, I hope you're feeling sufficiently filled up with what you need to know about church history and why it matters. Uh, last week, we did the Reformation in about 15 minutes, and I feel, I feel completely reformed. I mean, I think we did it. Um, but I, I, I do want to just... Uh, I've tried to end every class. Come on in. I, there's... Um, um, if, if only my students were as interested in history as Advent seems to be at this hour. So, uh, they're not. Um, but I tell you what, history is one of those strange subjects that the older you get, the more it matters. Maybe because we're getting more history behind us. But for some reason, it's lost on the youth a lot. Uh, but some, sometimes we hit a certain age, and it's like, a, you know what, I, I kind of need to know this a little more. And uh, so, including myself. So, uh, I've tried to end each section with sort of a summary of, well, what is, you know, what's, what's the big picture? And I thought I'd, I'd try to do that again just as a quick review of, uh, of the Reformation. Um, why it matters. The Reformation <coughs> is... It's a theological argument. It's a theological disputation. At the heart of it is the question of how grace is communicated to believers. Uh, that's the substance of the Reformation. And then uh, this, within this protest, we have various figures who emerge. We have Martin Luther and some of the issues uh, he raises. 1520 being a very important year with these three letters. I'm sure you reviewed this week. And... And then Calvin's Institutes uh, and, and, and the, the impact of Calvinism and Geneva on uh, Western Christian thought has been enormous, especially through Presbyterianism and John Knox. Uh, the beards are wonderful, aren't they? And then, of course, there's Cramner. He shaved his beard off, uh, being the good Anglican he was. Um, talk to Gil about this. May spend a little more time on Cramner next spring. Uh, because we kind of s- skip through him uh, and, and some of his accomplishments. So, but the big iterations, Lutheranism, Calvinism, uh, Presbyterianism, Anglicanism, the, these are all expressions of, of, of how grace is communicated under Protestant, the protest of against the sacramental uh, theology. Grace, at the heart of it, is, is imputed. It doesn't operate ex opere operato automatically, just because it is uh, the sacrament, it, it operates because faith and uh, the power of God share a relationship. Um, and this, of course, puts the church on, for historical reasons, it puts it on a very different 
attack. So now in the world, we have the Eastern Orthodox Church, we have the Catholic Church, and we have the Protestant churches, right? So now that, that, that's where we have to move forward from uh, the 1500s onward. And uh, that's what I want to do today. I want to try to work us through the consequences of the Reformation up to the present hour, sort of. Uh, and then close week after next with some questions and thoughts about the 21st century and the moment we live in in light of all of this. So, immediately, one of the most immediate concerns, obviously uh, Europe fragmented, uh, Europe fragmented into different uh, expressions of Christianity depending on your geography. That's a long, complicated question, how each ended where. But the gist of it is, everything we just described had a geographic expression somewhere on the continent. And um, uh, depending on where you lived, you would have been born into uh, one of these systems of, of Christian belief. The most immediate crisis is, so fragmentation, yes, but there's still a degree of unity. One of the, the first great challenges of Protestantism, though, came uh, in the early, the late 1500s and early 1600s, and it was a question of just how much Calvin can we take, uh, and and what is it, uh, what is it that can be adjusted? Uh, this came from a, uh, a gentleman named Jacob Arminius. This is out of the Dutch countries. It was out of the Low Countries, so it was the, out of the Netherlands. This argument broke out. Um, because Arminius, uh, being a, a keen mind and a good thinker, he recovered the old Pelagian argument with Augustine, and he said that the problem with Calvinism is it, 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 it hands too much, it takes too much of our own will and independence away, specifically as uh, what were the effects of the fall on our wills. And uh, Arminius asserts a new position on the freedom of the will as the arbiter of whether we accept grace or not, okay? Um, and this uh, ends up in a very tight scholastic sort of argument that is ultimately condemned at the Synod of Dort, and Calvinism is restored as the Dutch Reformed Church position. But it has, like a pebble in a pond, it has repercussions through Christendom, uh, because, uh, and it remains an issue today, uh, it remains to this very hour, this relationship between God's sovereignty and our will and, 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 and human nature, our anthropology, our relationship um, to God. And, and that'll have implications for what I'm going to say uh, for the remainder of our, our time together. So it's important to note, without getting into the weeds too much on it, uh, that... Um, Calvinism doesn't settle anything. It opens up uh, new poss it opens up new kinds of arguments within the church about human freedom. And I know many of you are familiar with these arguments yourself. Okay. What else do we need to know to move into the modern world? Well, we need to understand that the nature of authority early in the in the early modern period in Let's define our time period now. I'm talking the 1600s and into the 1700s, late 1500s into the 17th century, okay? And then we'll edge into the 18th century here. But early, 
early in the Reformation and early in, into the 17th century, the nature of authority, uh, well, let me rephrase it. Authority, the nature of authority may be questioned, but the idea that there is authority, objective truth, is not questioned. Both Catholic, the Catholic Church and the Protestant reformers appeal to a standard of authority. Okay? So we, there, are, there is an overlap. There's, there's not this idea to each his own with either group. Both share a supernatural sanction for the authority of tradition and scripture. In other words, there's still a, a consensus, at least, that there is a supernatural ordering to the universe and to how we understand God's plan of salvation, the authority of scripture, the nature of the church. This is very important because this is the heart of a debate today, is what is that authority? So I think it's important to establish that uh, they're not arguing about whether or not there's such a thing as objective truth. We're arguing that in the 21st century. That's that's the concluding of of the series. We're arguing that it's a different kind of crisis both camps agree there is objective truth and it can be known it's just how is it mediated how do we how do we get at it so to speak and rely upon it okay now i say this is a history of christianity the truth is i'm going to focus on some very specific things now for the rest of this time one i'm going to focus mainly on protestantism the Catholic Church uh, set its uh, pattern with the Council of Trent, and not much changes until 1968. So, and then Protestants kind of have a halfway uh, through the door policy now. Uh, but but even so, it's it's it, it it's not much. Um, but. Trent and the policies of Trent stay in place. The theology of Trent remains in place. I'm going to focus more on Protestant thought today. And frankly, I'm going to focus on Protestantism in the West and in the in United States. So I, I want to just make sure I'm not, I'm not speaking for everybody everywhere at all times here. For our reflection on, on Protestantism, I, I want to put forth that there are, um, I think, three modes of expression that came out of the Reformation. <laughs> that have shaped the environment we, we live in uh, in the 21st century, and they came about over the last 200 to 250 years, okay? The, the first of these is what I will call confessional Protestantism. And I'm going to say more about each of them, but in general, con- confessional Protestantism is what we talked about last week. It's the, that period of the Reformation, sometimes called magisterial, that period of the Reformation, where as the churches began to form, apart from the Catholic Church, they came up with statements of faith and statements of uh, organization of the sacraments and such that made sense of their position. So, this would include a number of different confessions. We'll look at some in just a second. But confessional Protestantism is a launching point for understanding the next two centuries. Out of confessional Protestantism, two other expressions have emerged. Two other expressions have emerged that have serious consequences, especially in our culture. One is evangelical 
Protestantism, and I, I am distinguishing it from confessional Protestantism. You'll see why. And then liberal Protestantism, or liberal theology. All right? So, makes sense. These are, this, is our, this is our gateway into the modern world of Christian Christianity from a Protestant, Protestant Reformational perspective. The confessions, the evangelicals, and the liberals, and there's also overlap between them. All right? What are the confessions of, what am I talking about? Well, we, we're in a church that we could technically identify as a confessional Protestant church. And what do I mean by that? Well, you can see the list here. It, it's the Lutheran, Calvinist, or Reformed churches, and the Anglican church. These are your baseline confessional churches. They differ from... Um, these guys in the Radical Reformation, all right? They differ in that we might say they're creedal. They're creedal, that we, they, they hold to a roadmap to Scripture. The creeds and confessions were always meant to be a, navig a navigation, a compass to Scripture, not uh, uh, an attempt to get back to a pure apostolic church, all right? That was the Radical Reformation. And these creeds uh, took, took different expressions at different times. Uh, the Augsburg Confession, I don't know how many of you have a Lutheran background or Lutheran family, 1530, one of the earliest ones out of Germany that says this is what we believe as Protestants. This is what German Protestantism is. Okay? Uh, the 39 Articles, we should know that one uh, at Advent. Um, the 39 Articles is the foundational confessional guide to Anglicanism went through different iterations uh, over time with the final version in the Elizabethan age in 1571. Started out with 10, uh, Cramner then got busy, got up to 42, and then they said, well, all right, and then Mary comes to the throne and says, I don't want any of them, burn them, they do, and I'm not being flippant, they do, um, get rid of Elizabeth, comes back, and then she says, okay, um, how are we going to navigate uh, the, the, the Catholic sympathies within England without tearing the country into a civil war? And uh, she manages this. Uh, so the final iteration, 1571, civil war happens anyway after her death, about, 100, uh, about um, 50 years later, 60 years later. So... The 39 Articles, the Anglican and the English world, the Belgic Confessions, these are called the Three Forms of Unity. Um, anybody from the Midwest or up in the, the Dutch Reformed Church is huge in that part of the country. It's not, not as much down here. But geographically, the Midwest, the West, um, a lot of Dutch Reformed influence coming out of the Low Countries because it was a very Calvinistic world. Um, and they had... They, uh, they created their own system of confessions called the Belgic Confession. It, too, went through different iterations between 1561 and 1618, with the final version being this, the Synod of Dort saying, we're going to be a Calvinist church. We're not going to be an Arminian church. Does that make sense so far? Okay, so... Um, and then finally, Presbyterian influence, more familiar in this part of the world, um, 
with Westminster Confession of Faith being one of the last great confessions that came out of the English Civil War uh, when the, uh, the parliamentarians uh, that had control over and against the crown, 1646, they issued the Westminster Confession of Faith. All right, may have heard of these, may not have heard of them. We don't talk about them. They're not in our vocabulary the way they would have been to earlier generations of Christian Protestants. Okay, they're there. We can go, well, probably in this room and pull out the, we can find the 39 articles, like a little scavenger hunt. I mean, we could do it. Uh, They're in our pews. Um, But again, we don't necessarily catechize with them the way we used to. And nor do they, are they discussed as like a a touchstone of the faith the way they might have been. And that leads me to um, uh, the, uh, some reasons why, why that is. Confessional Protestantism makes explicit claims about ministry, the church, and the sacraments. It says something about how we practice our faith. Each of these, I'm not isolating them, each of these say something about how we actually practice our faith. They agree on many points, but they often disagree about key Christian teachings and how Christianity is embodied in rituals and practices. So, there's much overlap, but we can't deny the 17th century was a bloody century over religious wars related to these geographical territories, as well as um, who's going to be in charge, which confession's going to win. And if out of the Anglican heritage, we the English Civil War was one of these bloody occasions over uh, the question of theology. Theology was at the center of much of this conflict. It wasn't the only thing, but it mattered. It mattered. Okay. So confessional Protestantism has a lot of overlap, but there are serious differences. That's why there's a Lutheran church on one corner and a Presbyterian church on another. We just don't invade each other anymore, and we could, I suppose. We wanted to have an interesting week. (laughs) All right. What was it trying to do? The confessions were trying to maintain a coherent theological relationship between reason and revelation, our private experience and objective biblical authority, and the transcendence and eminence of God's work. They They were trying to hold all this together in a coherent expression. All right? And I think that, that, that's a summary kind of idea of what's going on there with uh, the confessional world of theology in the Reformation. Yes, sir? Back in just a minute, talking about the Reformation, it took place in the 1500s, correct? Correct. Did it basically give rise to the different, for want of a better term, denominations, Methodists? So I'm about to talk about that. Yes. Yes. For lack of, if it came about because of, was it Knox, whoever that yep. was preaching in Scotland? Knox preaching in Scotland. You you have different different personalities and teachers in different areas at different times, but um, Presbyterianism, yes, was a Scottish expression, yeah, of of Christianity, absolutely. Another Calvinist would be the Dutch churches. Uh, expression, and eventually we get to Methodists. I'm about to about to put them up here. <laughs> so. Any other question? I'm happy to entertain any other questions since we actually have time this 
wait. Okay. Um, so what happens? Well, <clears throat> in the 18th and 19th centuries, what we're calling confessional Protestantism splits along two primary lines, two primary divisions, all right, or categories, and you can see them. Evangelicalism becomes one expression, liberal Protestantism becomes the other. Right, and that's what I want to do now is try to show us how that happens and, and what that means. Every Christian should know this. Remember the title? Yeah, you need to know this, right? <laughs> All right. So, a couple of hundred years, we're still living with the consequences. What do you mean, Wallace? What do you mean that, that this is how this, this split happens? Well, let's just take evangelicalism. That's a word that gets tossed around a lot. This word gets tossed around a lot, and I'm not always sure we know what it means when we toss it. Often, Advent is characterized as an evangelical church. And, and that's interesting because we're also a confessional Anglican church, right? So what, what, what are the differences? Well, evangelicalism is more of a movement than a denomination. It's more of a disposition than a confession. Okay? How does this come about? Well, and, and what are they, what, what are the, was the main kind of summary sentence. The Bible does contain real objective truth. It is the Word of God. But communicating this truth involves experiential and an emotional responses that manifest in an ethical sort of reality for us. Okay? What, what, am, I, what am I saying? Well, I'm saying that out of this confessional world comes a new kind of expression that is how are our emotions and our affections going to be attached to this world of, pro of the protest of theology? How are we, uh, how, how are we drawn to this um, from our hearts, so to speak, and not just our heads? All right? It's possible, one possible way. All right? And you see some names. I, put, I think American Puritanism is one derivation. American Puritanism is a hard confessional group. They're people on a mission. They're going to come over here and show the Anglican Church how it's done. They're different from the pilgrims. The pilgrims separated from the Anglican Church. The Puritans never separated. Well, until they got over here and the wilderness chewed them up. <laughs> That's what happened. The brilliant people, Cambridge-trained ministers, these, these are not dummies, but they come over here very intentionally. They're some of the first revolutionaries in the West in the sense that they are an intellectual group trying to show a dominant culture what a true church is supposed to look like. Unfortunately, Europe quit looking at them. And here we are today. <laughs> so, out of American Puritanism, which is a whole complicated subject, I'm teaching some of that now in my intellectual, American intellectual history class, and... Every time I get into the Puritans, I think I got them, and I don't. You know, they're, they're slippery. Um, but out of this, uh, a child of Puritanism would be Jonathan Edwards, who's instrumental into developing the evangelical ethos. Why? Because Edwards, being the brilliant uh, person he was, he, under, he, he was looking at all the rationalism of the confessional world and saying, but there's this other part of ourselves that's emotional and effective. And there's a whole new thing called psychology. 
that's sort of being invented at this time. If you can invent psychology, it's been around. <laughs> but, and Edwards keys in on it in a brilliant way. And in England, Anglicanism itself begins to adapt some of these emotional sort of needs to the church through the preaching of George Whitfield or John Wesley, which is eventuates in its separate denomination called Methodism. And the, the name tells you everything. It's a method of Christianity, all right? So what are what do we want to know about this disposition or mood or tone called evangelicalism? Well, clearly I've, I've tried to say it involves your emotions and your feelings and your affections as much as it does your reason, right? Or your ability to articulate why you believe what you believe. It tends to emphasize personal conversion and the born-again experience. Should sound familiar, Southerners. Um, no one here gets out alive. Um, it, tends, it tends to isolate the Bible without regard for history, confessions, or institution. These are tendencies. I'm not trying to put it in a, put it in a perfect package here. Another tendency is toward interdenominationalism or non-denominationalism. All of this starts to emerge in the 18th and 19th century. There's a history of activism and social reform, anti-slavery, temperance. All the Anglicans just grabbed their chair, um, right? I mean, these are. There's a history of activism and, and, and social reform and evangelicalism. Your faith is to be lived out in community and in. And then, of course, there's a history of revivalism. We don't. It's interesting how that's fallen out of the cultural vernacular the last 30, 40 years. But there, those of probably looking around this room, most of us remember the, the 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 revival movements that would be on television. You know, um, network TV would have them on a Saturday evening or something. Um, but revivalism, of course, is a word that's often attached with the Great Awakening. Sorry, uh, with Edwards, Whitfield, and Wesley being sort of pioneers. It truly was a new way of field preaching of getting out of the institution to the heart. Okay? So that's evangelicalism. What about this other expression? Liberal Protestantism. The chart gets a little bigger here. <laughs> What's interesting about evangelicalism and liberal Protestantism is they're, they're, they're almost twin birthed in the sense they emerge in the West about the same time. And I do find it interesting, as we'll see toward the end, there's some overlap in a weird way. Following trends uh, such as modern science, philosophy, and social conditions, liberal Protestantism advocates for significant and far-reaching shifts in biblical authority and the nature and purpose of theology in the church. That's my summary point. So what are these shifts? What are you talking about? Well, the three words, modern science, philosophy, and social conditions, begin to reshape approaches to the nature of authority that is inherited out of the Reformation. All right? And then below this, I have these three 
expressions, American Puritanism and Congregationalism. And you might say, well, wait a minute, I thought the Puritans were conservatives. Well, kind of. Kind of. Um, strangely enough, the Puritans not only give us Edwards, but they give us Unitarianism also through Harvard. And it, it's a direct connection between the Congregationalist movements in New England and third generation, second, third, fourth generation Puritans who start navigating more toward a Unitarian Universalist perspective. You can imagine a lot of ink has been spilt trying to figure this out and the, the paradox of this. I think somewhere in it is is the seeds of an Arminianism that, that, that let me just say it this way, for all the talk that Calvin, Calvinism and Arminianism are at, um, are on this, this, this like fight, in this deep fight, it's more of a spectrum depending on where, it's more of a spectrum where you want to keep that needle, where you want to hold it. And the truth is Puritanism in the wilderness, which is what it was in the frontier, as there were no institutions for it to grow out of, as institutions develop, that there is a kind of hard logic that can emerge out of certain expressions of Calvinism, not Calvin, by the way, which kind of can push towards um, universalism and Unitarianism, which is, if God is that sovereign, he's that sovereign. <laughs> and human agency is removed. <laughs> I'm being real careful here because it's complicated and I don't want to oversimplify it, but now I'm going to do something I would never do. Trust me. Um, American Puritanism and New England Congregationalism contribute to a, a kind of expression of liberalism over time. The larger environment of this time is the Enlightenment and the rationalism and empiricism of the new sciences. If Newton, and all of his brilliance, could finally show us that we can control and explain the physical universe, what about other aspects of life, right? How much can reason and empirical science influence other things? And this, of course, leads to the age of reason, the Enlightenment, major cultural Western shift that introduced methodological doubt, all right? And it emphasized reason and experience divorced from faith and belief. Okay? By methodological doubt, all I mean is we don't start with ultimate truth claims. We always start with experimental claims to get to truth. We live in this world. It made us who we are. It gave us many, many beneficial things, but it also had serious implications for Christians and Christian faith. Final thing I have up here is higher criticism, which is related uh, to rationalism and empiricism. It was pioneered primarily in Germany. It's a subculture and subject within itself, with lots of German names like Schleimacher and Harnack and Ritchel and Trolch. Oh my, um, as they. and uh, higher criticism, I'll, I'll say more about the general features of it, 
But uh, it basically is a scientific approach, enlightenment approach to the nature of, of, of what the Bible is. What is it? And then how, in turn, does it influence theology? Well, so what are some of the general characteristics then of liberal Protestantism? Theology, I just said this, theology and scriptural authority should be amended using the tools of science. The same way we may approach archaeology, or the same way we may approach an ancient Egyptian artifact, is how we approach the Bible. The Bible is an artifact. It's a cultural artifact that can be dissected and examined on those terms. As such, Scripture, and ultimately Christianity and its practices, should be examined for what they have in common with other religious claims, including, are they useful? Is there any utility to these claims? Not just the claims. So it's a kind of, uh, you know, anthropological cultural study that we're, we, liberal Protestantism brings to the nature of Scripture and Christianity. Again, the Bible's a cultural artifact, not necessarily a divine authoritative document, right? Or, or divine speech. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Okay. The subjective and experiential in liberal thought become more reliable than the objective and historical as a standard of theological reasoning. Um, this may seem contradictory. Well, I thought it was a scientific objective enterprise. Well, it is, but this is one of the tensions of modernity. As scientific and objective as we want the world to be, this little thing called postmodernism creeps in that says, but your own thinking and experience are equally as important, somehow. So, the subjective, so what it, liberal Protestant begins to emphasize more and more how uh, the psychology of theology. And finally, the ethical teachings of Christianity as social concerns are emphasized over and against the miraculous and historical claims of Christianity. Okay, great. Reformation, confessions, evangelicals, liberals, right? Well, what are some of the consequences of this? And then we can talk. We actually have, can maybe do some, some questions if you'd like. What happens when we shift from confessional Protestantism to evangelical? Ism as a kind of mood or, or expression of Christianity. Well, one is what uh, scholars call the democratization of Christianity. It's Nathan Hatch wrote a great book on this. Christianity becomes more subject to the democratic impulse under evangelicalism. Right? We vote with our feet. We don't like what Wallace is saying. We can go to the next class. It, it's, it's beautiful, right? And there's no consequences. We'll, we'll get lunch afterwards. The <laughs> Is, Christianity becomes more democratized under the evangelical impulse uh, than other types of expressions of Christianity. And it fits great in the American context as we become more democratized. It's adaptable, right? Political and cultural issues can take priority over older theological practices in evangelicalism. Remember what I said earlier? The language of confessions and catechism and memorization and, you know, growing up singing the Heidelberg Catechism in the Dutch Reformed churches, um, 
that's not really a practice of evangelicalism. It's um, how are you responding to your culture, your environment, uh, external pressures of, of this, you know, how, how is that response happening? And, and that's one effect of evangelicalism. You, you probably reckon it can manifest in me and my Bible personalism, right? And, and we know this. Uh, it, it, these are some liabilities of it. And finally, leadership tendencies can lean toward the cult of personality. And, and these are some of the liabilities as confessional Protestantism has yielded to evangelicalism. Again, reiterating, evangelicalism believes in the objective authority of the Word of God, though. It's not a system of faith. It's a disposition. All right? What are some results of the theological shift from confessional Protestantism to theological liberalism? Theological liberalism um, rejects or substantially modifies uh, the supernatural divine sanction for the authority of Scripture. That's what it does. It changes. Remember I said the Catholics and Protestants agreed there is objective authority. That no longer holds. And we've crossed that, that gate. I'll talk about that in the very last class, what the consequences of this may look like for us. We've crossed the Rubicon. It tends to reduce the difficult teachings of Scripture to his history and culture or historical context and cultural situations. Oh, that was then, this is now. Now, by the way, there's something to that. I mean, there's not, that's not completely incoherent or wrong, but it's, it can be a, a very uh, tricky thing when you're saying something like a miracle belonged to that kind of worldview, not our worldview. It tends to teach Christianity as ethics and personal fulfillment. It tends, again, trends tends toward asserting love and tolerance as the highest ethical realization of Christianity. And traditional concerns about God, human nature, our need for salvation matter peripherally to the possibility of justice and peace through politics and culture. These are all trends, I would suggest, okay, of liberal Protestantism. Why, as the bells signal the end, why does any of this matter for today? Well, <laughs> evangelicalism and liberal Protestantism are the leading expressions of post-Reformation Christianity in the United States. That should be one thing to know. Just You need to know that <laughs> if you don't. Most people in this room know that. But they are. Protestantism is still the largest expression of Christianity in the United States. More controversial, perhaps, though substantially different, evangelicalism and liberal Protestantism overlap. They're both born. They're twin-born, and there's some overlap. They both can, in their own ways, and through their own sort of mechanisms that I tried to show you, find Christianity meeting psychological, cultural, and political needs. Another reason this matters today, as I've said, is we operate in a democratized marketplace now in the church. We're not born into a parish system. We choose a parish. We choose a church. Our, our forefathers and mothers did not know that, what that was. There are benefits to that. I certainly understand that. But there are also trade-offs to that that we need to reckon with in the 21st century as well. What does it mean to be able to vote 
what you believe. And finally, I think a question that I wrestle with personally, and I know a number of other theologians are wrestling is, what does a significant and meaningful recovery of confessional Protestantism look like for the future? I think that's an important takeaway from the modern world. It didn't go away. What are we doing with it? What does it matter? I'll wrap us up there. That's the modern, again, the West, the United States, the modern church, there's much more that can be said. Are there any questions or conversation to be had? Yes, sir. Uh, so two weeks hence, will you also uh, reflect upon the massive growth of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement as, as far as it's affecting the church? Large? I will now, yes. Yes, no, it is um, certainly. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I, I actually think it's important to uh, to talk about that. Yes, sir. Um, do you have anything to say about how this democratization uh, of uh, what church and what parish you belong to has gotten into pretty much every denomination except for Jehovah's Witnesses, including Catholics? Yeah. In the US? Um, it, it, yeah it, it's, it's a massive... Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a classic and massive example of a cultural force shaping uh, the way people make decisions. Um, and I, I, I don't, I know, I will say this, there are movements out there. Uh, I think of some of the stuff Rod Dreher's doing and stuff, they're trying to push back on this. And I don't, you know, a kind of, we need to return to a neo-monasticism. Uh, there, there's stuff out there uh, there are attempts out there, but it, it, the, the wave is too strong. I mean, it's, it's the, you know, you're fighting against a, a tidal wave of, of, of what we think is an, our understanding of freedom. And let's face it, I don't think any of us have ever not been offended at a church at some point. <laughs> we can get in the car and go, see? Like there, that's it. <laughs> so I, 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 you're right. I, you said it. It's huge it's huge and um jehovah's witness yeah i I don't have a lot to say about that i don't (laughs) are the congregationalists uh unitarian in their their theology primarily today yes in new england congregationalism uh ucc they're universalist unitarian meaning denial of the trinity universalist meaning universal salvation for all Harvard. Yeah. Cambridge. It came. Yes, sir. It, uh, the intellectual origins are Cambridge. It translated. It did. I, I sounds flippant. It truly translated into Har- uh, the United States through the colonies through Harvard, and then Yale seceded. <laughs> yes, they were congregationalist schools. Yes, sir. Yes. In terms of time of this progression, where are we now in, the, in this? Can you put a date? I mean, a, oh. approximate date. Now, how far we're going to progress oh. further? In the next class? Yeah. And where are we now and progressing to? <laughs> um. We got a lot to cover in that. 
Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, we're, here's what I would say. We're in a mess, but God's in charge. And I know that was, it sounds cheap, but I don't mean it cheap. Um, I think that's what I really want to try to cover in the next class is where the 21st century is carrying us. I will say this. Uh, I, I think what I would like to talk about next is the degree, the new, when you look at what I, what I really want to show this class as a kind of summary is that the issues going way back to the early church here are still with us. They don't change. What is scripture? Who is Christ? Why do we need grace and salvation? They don't change. Now, the way we work it out changes. So I would say that we're still here, always, just like our forefathers were in the church, in the earliest church, after the apostles. But I will say, and this is, we have a new set of issues and struggles. And one of them is the rise of identity as a normative category in the way we make meaning. Um, this is new. This is new. Um, and we are in the very early uh, decades of this, uh, of what it means that our most basic ways of knowing are formed through, first, how we establish our identities um, and how we express those identities. And with the most obvious and controversial of those being um, gender, race, and sexuality. And... This is new territory. So that's where I, I want to end uh, the class week after next on something easy. And uh, <laughs> so, yes. So with all of this Protestant change in different directions, and you did say you were focusing primarily on that, what is the Catholic Church doing? Yeah. Oh, oh I think that's a, a great question. By the way, let me let me just answer that real quick. The Catholic Church. Um, it's a fun study <laughs> because it's deeply enmeshed in European politics, of course, at this time. But the, the Catholic Church goes through its own modernist controversy in the, 18, in the 19th century, and specifically the 1870s. Uh, there's a liberal movement in Catholicism that's still here today uh, that largely it was the, Pius IX condemned it did a pretty good job of it too if you read some of his stuff uh, he says no we are not going to be adapt to modernism and liberalism and and that then where it's had its most fertile growth is in the United States not in Europe so that's a quick answer but yes there is a Catholic struggle with modernity and liberalism just like there is a Protestant one thank you You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.